and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. This week's guest is one of those people that, uh, again, if you had told uh, like like 12-year-old me that we would be doing this, he would have freaked out a little bit. Uh, his name is Glenn Gordon Karen, and he is, uh, I think, one of the influential television writers of the last 30, 40 years. He's most famous for the show Moonlighting, which ran on ABC in the 80s and broke a lot of molds in television uh, just in terms of you know, how it broke the fourth wall in talking to the audience, how much dialogue it crammed into there. And also it was one of the seminal shows in terms of building up will they, won't they romantic relationships. Uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard played the leads. It's it's still a great show. It still holds up if you go in and check it out. It's on, it's on DVD. But he's also made uh, a little sci-fi show I love called Now and Again. He made uh, the show Medium, which won Patricia Arquette and Emmy. Uh, and he is now working on the CBS show Bull, which is about, I was sort of, always uh, want to refer to it as Smallville with Dr. Phil, which is not technically true, but it is about uh, the world of looking into juries and figuring out how they're feeling and thinking, which is what a lot of people who work in the legal profession spend a lot of time thinking about, and it is inspired by the early experiences of one Dr. Phil, which is why I always want to call it Smallville with Dr. Phil, even though it's it's not accurate at all. Uh, but he's the showrunner on the show's second season. But anyway, we talked about Bull for a while, but we talked about Moonlighting. We talked about his experiences breaking into the industry. We, we talked about now and again, and we talked about a little film he made about sex and conception for Walt Disney World. And I think that uh, you're going to enjoy this conversation. So stick around. Thank you for joining us, Glenn. Ah, it's great to be here. You know, when I heard that you were joining Bull, um, kind of looking at your career, and I'm, obviously you've worked on a lot of different kinds of shows, but... This was not, I guess, what I where I expected you to go. Like, what what about this drew you in? What well, like what what do you enjoy about working on this type of show? I guess I'd say. I'm not even sure it was about the type of show. Mm-hmm. It, it was really a sort of a confluence of events, which I'm sure will be boring to most people. But <laughs> um, what I do, you know, when you make movies, you make television shows, is you you go in and you have an idea and you develop it. Right, right, right. And very often you end up working, I, I jokingly refer to it as working for six people. You, you'll spend three or four months, you'll write a script, um, and you give it to four or five or six people. And more often than not, it ends up not getting made. Sure. And uh, I was just at that moment in my life where I wanted to make something. Mm-hmm. I was very anxious. I love directing. I love producing. I love the idea of 200 people and all of them coming together and right, right. making a thing. Um, and Bull, strangely, had sort of followed me for a while. When I was doing, I was doing a show at Fox called Tyrant with Howard right. Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were asked to attend a meeting, Howard and I, with Dr. Phil and his son. Sure. And they were basically pitching the idea for Bull. And we heard the idea and we both had the same reaction, which was, we don't think that'll work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we passed and... Uh, they moved on, obviously, sure. and got Paul Antanasio, who wrote a wonderful pilot. Um, and then apparently, Paul, somewhere in the pilot process, decided he wasn't interested in running a show again. He had done it a number of times. And I got another call from CBS, and they right. said, hey, would you be interested in running this show? And I sort of laughed. <laughs> and uh, But I wanted to meet Paul. I'd always wanted to meet Paul. I'm a big Paul Antanasio fan. So I met with Paul. And... Um, it was clear to me that 
it wasn't the right time for me. It wasn't the right, and I wasn't really interested. I was just sort of dallying. Right. And then, uh, I don't know. Oh, I wrote another pilot. I wrote two pilots, one for ITV and one for CBS. Sure. And the one for CBS, I was pretty sure was going to go. And at the last minute, it didn't. Mm. And I was sort of surprised by that. And really, again, itching to work, itching to get on the floor with something. And they said, you know, we, we have this other thing we want to talk to you about. And it turned out it was Bull. <laughs> yeah. Now, Bull had already premiered. And it was, um, uh, certainly in terms of eyeballs, the biggest hit of last year in terms of new shows. So I was sort of, you know, sort of startled by that. Uh, and they said, no, no, it's, it's a hit show. And we're very... Uh, we're very happy about that, but we, we actually think it could be an even better show than it is. Right. And I was like, wow, I, I don't recall ever getting that call before. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I looked at the show, but the big thing for me was meeting Michael Weatherly, who I didn't know and actually didn't know of. I had never watched NCIS. So Michael and I sat at the, uh, I think at the Bel Air Hotel and for like four hours and we just hit it off. Right. All of his sort of hungers. Mm-hmm about the show were the same as the things that I was interested in doing with the show. Right. Um, so it, it, a lot of it was about, and this is hard to explain to people who don't do what we do, a lot of it's about sort of being itinerant and suddenly having a desire to say, I, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I want to go make things. And frankly, I don't want to spend another year and a half, two years asking for permission. I just right. want to go. Yeah. And that was there. So yeah. I took it. Um, and it, Mark Gothman, who presided over that first season and had done a very good job, um, was very gracious. You know, he really hewed the show as sort of a classic CBS procedural. Right. And I wanted to take it and make it a little more character driven. Sure. Uh, but he was very gracious about it. And I ended up really doing the last three episodes of the first season and then. Jumping in with both feet with the second season. Right, right. Any show is going to do, you know, course correction over the first couple seasons, especially. What's that process like on one of these big network shows that where you have to make 22 episodes? You know, where you're trying to find the series or trying to, like, hone in on its voice, but also you need to be turning out an episode every week, basically. Well, I think I'm, I'm lucky mm-hmm. in that the first show that I ever created and ran was an enormous hit. And that that buys you a tremendous amount of goodwill. Um, You know, Moonlighting was like this just gigantic thing. Um, And I was so stupid that I'm not sure I completely appreciated how big it was. Mm -hmm. But in my subsequent work in television, I'm aware when I go into a network, first of all, they solicited me. I didn't solicit them. Sure. Um, So a lot of what happened was early on, you know, we trust you. Go ahead and do whatever it is you want to do. And we'll obviously react if we see something that, that concerns us. But, um, and luckily, those first three episodes that I did at the end of the last season were very well received. And then when we started producing episodes for this year, everybody kind of went, wow, okay. And, um, and then did what all networks do, which is to say they took them out and tested them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And luckily, they tested well. Too, But I think the other thing, too, is they sense that, you know, Michael, let me go back to Michael Weatherly, because he's really sort of at the heart of what Bull is. Um, And once I got to know him and once I got to understand who he was and what he was capable of, 
Um, he sort of occupies a singular place in the, certainly in the broadcast television, you know, uh, galaxy. He's a mid-40s uh, leading man. Right. And, um, and a really good, like, comedian mm -hmm. who can also do drama. I mean, he can kind of, I remember I was on the show, and I think we'd done an episode or two, and I called David Staff, who runs CBS Studios. And I said, you know what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, no, but I trust whatever it is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, let me be clear about what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sort of a contemporary Rockford Files. Right. Which is to say a show built around a guy and, and the people in his orbit. And they go out and they have these cases. Mm -hmm. But the cases are just, they drive the narrative train, but they're not what the episode's about. The, right. the episodes are about these people but, mm -hmm. and him at the center of that. Um, and that's really what we've been striving to do. I mean, it's an amazing cast. You've got... You know, Chris Jackson from Hamilton and Geneva Carr and um, Jamie Kirshner and, sure, sure. and um, Ms. Antanasio, whose, whose first name escapes me for the moment. Forgive me. Mm. Uh, uh, but it, it's, it's a terrific, Annabella, it's a terrific cast. And that was my reaction when I watched some of the earlier shows, which were very good for what they were setting out to do. But I thought, gosh, here's this whole group of thoroughbreds. And they're not really being given a lot of, a lot of opportunity to run. Right. Um, and I'm a big whore that way. I love to see actors act, performers perform. Um, so, you know, yeah. that, that's really, how's that for a long answer to yeah. a short question? <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. You know, I think that uh, TV critics, uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I fell off of Bull in season one. I mm -hmm. watched the four from season two that, that I had access to, and I, I liked them a lot. But as a TV critic, this is not my kind of program that I keep up with. And like mm -hmm. we have this, I think that even those of us who are more open to them, like myself, kind of have this unconscious bias against case of the week shows. So I want you to like make the case for why we should be paying more attention to case of the week shows, why these are like, like what is, what is it you can do in this form that you can't do in something more serialized, like, like a tyrant? Well, it isn't what you can or can't do. It's, it's to me, it's <laughs> some nights you go to a restaurant, and you want fish mm -hmm. and some nights you go and you want chicken. Mm. Um, and so there is no comparison. I mean, to me, the sort of high watermark in terms of the television in the last 20 years is Mad Men. Sure. Which is completely serialized. Mm -hmm. Um, there are crises that erupt in an episode that get solved within that episode, but that's hardly the narrative engine of the episode. Um, but not everyone is willing to make that commitment. Um, and the CBS model is still a very relevant model all over the world. I sound like I think in a very uh, clear Machiavellian way about these things. And in truth, in my life, I don't. Mm, yeah. It's a different form. Mm -hmm. Sort of like saying, okay, I'm going to go do an opera now. Yeah. Oh, you mean everybody has to sing everything? Yes, that's how they do it. Well, at CBS, when you do a television program, you have to pay homage right. to the fact, if it's a one-hour show, and it's a, quote, crime show, right. you have to pay homage to that. But I think if you looked at those four episodes, you'll see that what we do is we try and really kind of get up to the line of how much can we get away yeah. with that doesn't speak to that. And that really comes from when I created Medium. Um, <laughs> when I created Medium, um, it was for NBC. Right. We were made by CBS, but we were on NBC. And NBC was in the flush of realizing that in Law & Order, they had this, this behemoth. Right. The show, I think, had started to serialize on, well, I can't remember if it was A&E. It was one of those things. And all of a sudden, huge audiences started to turn up. And so 
as we were crafting the pilot, they were constantly sort of hammering me and saying, we really don't care about this other stuff. Yeah. We just, the crime, the crime. And I said, but you don't understand. I don't care about the crime. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. Um, I care about these people. I care about this marriage. I care about this insane proposition that a woman who says she can see a dead Civil War soldier standing in the corner of the bedroom is sleeping with a man who's, you know, got a PhD in physics. Right. <laughs> like, how does that work? How, uh, <laughs> you know, how do you negotiate that? How do you right. do that with kids? But that's what was interesting to me. So when we moved from NBC to CBS, which we did in the last two years of the show, we were sort of, we were, and by, and by the way, that's the way that we continue to do the show. Um, mm -hmm. We concentrated on the people. We always had a case, mm -hmm. but we concentrated on the people. That was really, I think if you ask people what they tuned in to see, they'll tell you it was, it was that study of a marriage. Um, and that same sort of thing is, I think, why they called me. Right. On Bull, because they went, okay, he, he can do that, but mm -hmm. he does this other thing. And we really need to start caring about these people a little more. Yeah. That's my, I, I'm guessing, but that's my sense. Sure, sure. Uh, the legal drama, I think because of shows like Law & Order, uh, David E. Kelly's work, is really kind of where TV does a lot of social issues storytelling. You know, the classic ripped from the headlines, Law & Order episodes, shows yeah. that are dealing with issues in society today. And you're doing some of that on Bull, but like I'm wondering how far you think you can go with that before it becomes like, and I don't think you've gotten, but, but you know what I mean? Like sometimes, like I watch some of those old Law & Order episodes and I'm like, I don't remember what case they're ripping off here, you know? Well, we don't. I mean, yeah. we don't, ironically, there are two episodes, probably two that you saw that have sort of mirror image events that are going on in <clears throat> society, but it wasn't by design. Sure. In fact, one of them was written before the thing happened, which was the Penn State. We did a, an episode about a kid uh, who ends up drowning during a hazing. Oh, okay. Uh, but, we, but it wasn't inspired by the Penn State thing. Um, in fact, before a lot of that became public, that episode was already being written and designed. The other one, which was about um, assisted suicide, mm -hmm. a young kid, yeah. above, mm -hmm. again, doesn't, isn't, wasn't inspired by anything that had happened in life so much as what we look for are interesting moral paradigms. You know, um, the idea that Bull... It, 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 you know, he's not a lawyer. He, he sort of lives in this adjacency right. to a lawyer. So it isn't his job to prove guilt or innocence. It's mm -hmm. his job to say, all right, you've got this problem. I'm going to help you navigate this right. through court. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes he comes to discover that maybe he's doing the navigating for a person he otherwise wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Or he comes to discover that even though the person is innocent, mm -hmm. they're going to lose. Um, so it's a... It's a it, it's a slightly different playing field. Yes, it's a legal show. Right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I directed a, a movie years ago called Clean and Sober, and I was out doing press for the movie, and, and this gentleman said to me, so, and this was in the 80s, he said, oh, you, you made this drug movie. Right. And I said, no, 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 I didn't make a drug movie. I made, I made a movie about redemption and about this and about that, and he went, he looked at me like, it's a drug movie. <laughs> um, Bull is a legal show. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I make my peace with that. Um, but, but it's one, again, that I think is, is far more invested in characters. I mean, when you look at Law & Order, I think one of the fascinating and defining things about Law & Order is how little you know right. about the principal <laughs> yeah. other than their work life. You know, they come out, they do the thing, mm -hmm. you know, they go, dun, dun, dun. They sell some cars, <laughs> they come back, they do the thing. Um, its allure is, is, is different. Mm -hmm. um, the Kelly shows, in their own way, were 
a little satire in them. There was something right, else right. going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, this show, I think, occupies a slightly different landscape. I think right. it's, uh, you know, and we'll see. We'll see if it, if it works. It seems to be working for people. Hopefully, it'll do that. You know, let, well, let me come at it from a slightly different angle, then, sure. which is, you know, I I, I really like the uh, um, the assisted. Uh, suicide episode, for instance. And that, of course, is kind of a perennial, like people are always talking about that issue. What is it about working in this sphere that makes it that makes it easier or more interesting to talk about those issues that you might not have in, say, a cop show? I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is, when you set out to do 22 of anything, <laughs> um, which, by the way, is an insane proposition, and sometimes yeah. it's 24. I mean, last year we did 24. Mm-hmm. Um there is a, just a, a baseline hunger for story ideas that exists. Right. And you're not always, you're not always given the time or the intellectual bandwidth to parse what does this mean to me? Or about, It's really about, wow, here's a really interesting conundrum. Right. And it's a moral conundrum. Mm-hmm. I can understand how to make a case that what this young man did was merciful and beautiful and a function of the fact that he was madly in love with this woman. And this was her desire. I also know that to a lot of people, this is uh, blasphemy. Right. You know, which is why it, it then becomes interesting to explore. So you've got, you know, Benny, who's a Catholic. And we revealed that his Catholicism was important to him at the end of last season. And he says, you know, I can't do this. Right. I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Which I think on most broadcast shows would have been the end of it. But Bull said, no, <laughs> I'm paying you, man. Get in there. Yeah. What the hell is your problem? You know, and then actually he makes it even more pointed and says, you know, what, what God do you pray to where it's okay to say I'm bowing out of this? Mm-hmm. No, go in there and save that boy's life. Right. What the hell's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't lie to you. There was a moment when the network went, must Bull get so upset? Huh, must yeah. he be so insistent? Must, is this a rock we need to turn over? And I went, yeah. Sure. You know, I think it's surprising in the context um, I don't think anybody needs to rent a tux because I don't think anybody's going to pick up an award for making that choice. But I do think in the context of what we're doing, it's, hey, you go, oh, wow. Right. People are actually staking out territory emotionally and intellectually and then trying their best to defend it and then changing their minds. And, you know, it's all good stuff. Right, right. Well, CBS is like kind of the last broadcaster in a way. Like they're kind of the last network that's trying to get as many people to watch their shows as possible. Right. Like everybody else, even the other broadcast networks increasingly are going toward niches. Um, And I'm wondering like how you balance that at a time when the country is really politically polarized. How do you balance, we're going to tell this story about this really fraught issue, hopefully in a way that will speak to people who feel very differently about it. I blissfully don't, you don't care. care. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, I just go, that's a good story. I like sure. that story. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the opening of the episode this year, uh, the premiere, uh, you may or not may or may not have seen it, but it begins with this sort of uh, monologue, right. um, mm-hmm. this voiceover, and he talks about scandals in New York mm-hmm. and even references our current president and some of the romantic scandals that he was in. And I thought, I'm going to write this. Michael will record it. It'll never get on the air. Mm-hmm. But, you know... It's true. This is these were sort of the paramount scandals in New York. And in New York, scandals are sort of part of the oxygen of we did it. Yeah. It's thrown away. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but it it I do think sets the show apart in a way. I, I, it wants very much to live right now. Right. Um, and to the extent that it's successful doing that, we'll see. But you know, that's 
part of what we want to do. We, we, you know, we confront that Michael's character is a, a middle-aged man who's living by himself. And you start to say, I wonder why that is. Mm. Yeah. You know, I wonder what it's like to work for somebody who's this smart. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, we've all read the books about Steve Jobs. We've all read, you know, the things about Elon Musk. You know, it's hard. Those people are tough. Yeah. You know, and mercurial. But that's the price you pay to sort of be in the orbit of somebody who's really, really smart. So we're confronting all of that, you know. Right, right. And um, uh, we'll, like I said, we'll see if there's an appetite for it. But so far, we've been going up every week, which is nice. Mm. Um, the thing I always run into when I watch an episode of this show is it's about, you'd say, jury management, uh, I think. And every episode, I'm like, I guess what they're doing is technically legal, but like it pings something in me where I'm like. <laughs> well, this was the essence of the reason that I turned it down, actually, because sure. I <laughs> I think I said to Dr. Phil, so what you're suggesting is if you have enough money, mm-hmm. you can buy somebody who can job the system. Right. And I, I, he, I think initially was somewhat offended. Mm-hmm. Um, what isn't apparent until you sit down and talk to him, because this really was what he did for years sure. and years and years, is that they, they spent virtually an equal amount of time doing pro bono work. Right. And I said, well, how did you get into that pro bono work? Do you have people cruising the streets looking for it? And he said, no. Uh, but truthfully, once you're in the the, the court system, right. you'll be in the middle of trying a billion-dollar case. They'll call a recess, and as you're walking out of the courtroom, the judge will go, come here. Mm-hmm. And you go, yes. And I need you to get involved in this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he would say, now here I am. Mm-hmm. I'm trying a billion-dollar case for Colgate-Palmolive or yeah. you know, Ford Motor Company. And the judge presiding over that case is saying to me, get involved over here. Mm-hmm. You can be damn sure I got involved because <laughs> I didn't want to stand in front of that judge three weeks later and think if he or she decides against me, it's because I didn't. He said, so you become part of the whole pro bono network. Right. And by the way, I have to tell you, Dr. Phil, who I had my own preconceptions about before I got involved and even after having taken a meeting with him, turned out to be an amazing resource. Right. He's a really interesting guy. Um by the way, Michael's not playing him. Right. But clearly we're, we're, we're sort of playing in his swimming pool. I mean, he sort of invented trial science, certainly gave it a name. Right. Um, and he, I present him with all these sort of legal situations that I can't navigate. And he guides me through them. He's quite something. Yeah. 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 So. I want to talk a little bit about your career, too, because you've done so many things I, I've loved over the years. Um, but I want to know, like, you, when you were starting out, when you were breaking in, what's what's that story? Because it, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's it's very different now, is my sense. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a pretty ridiculous story. Okay, great. I, I very much wanted to be, I wanted to be, you know, Mike Nichols. I wanted to be Arthur Penn. I wanted to be Robert Altman. Sure. Or uh, Bob Rafelson, a name a lot of people don't say anymore. But I, I grew up, I was a teenager during that moment in American film where literally every Wednesday some new film would come out and you'd go see it and it would, it sounds ridiculous, but it would literally change the way you thought. Yeah. And I thought, I want, that's what I want to do. I had no idea what that was, but it was also that moment when people were starting to really um, sort of revere the idea of auteurs mm-hmm. and write about them. So I thought, I want to do that. I had no way of doing that. I, I lived on the other side of the country. I didn't know anyone in the movie business. So um, I got out of school during the middle of, there was a big recession and I was working in gas stations and movie theaters and all that kind of thing. And someone said to me, well, you know what you should do? You should, you should write a movie. Right. 
because that doesn't cost any money. Mm-hmm. Because back then, you know, I'm not sure people today are aware of the democratization of filmmaking. Yeah. But back then, if you wanted to make a film, you had to rent yeah. cameras. You had to rent sound equipment. It was extraordinarily expensive and wasn't really geared to the consumer market. And then you had to have it processed. At, I mean, it was an enormous thing and completely out of... I mean, my mom made window shades for a living. It, mm. it wasn't something that was going to happen in my house. So I very much took this idea of writing a movie to heart, mm-hmm. except I couldn't find a screenplay. I didn't know what a screenplay looked like. So I, the, the one screenplay that was sort of generally available that you could buy was the screenplay to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid by William Goldman. Great, great. So I took that book and I studied, studied it and taught myself to type <laughs> <laughs> and started writing what I perceived to be screenplays. Yeah. And um, there were a couple of guys in New York who were working for a very small production company. You really want to hear this whole board? Uh, this is great. This okay. Great. Go they, for it. They were working for this little production company in New York. And um, I used to rent, they had a back room and I would rent that back room to write in. And they approached me. They said, there's this thing going on in Asbury Park, New Jersey mm-hmm. uh, that we want to make a movie about. And that thing was, of course, Bruce Springsteen had started to happen and the, the whole culture there was starting to change. So I went and spent some time there and I wrote them this movie called Asbury Park. Right. Which six people read. <laughs> and I thought nothing of it. Mm-hmm. A year later, one of those people called me from California. He said, hi, how are you? It's been a long time, blah, blah, blah. He said, you'll never guess where I am. And I said, well, where are you? He said, well, I'm at NBC. Oh. I'm working for Fred Silverman. And Fred has an idea for a pilot. And we were wondering if you would come and listen to this idea, maybe write the pilot. And I was like, well, what's the idea? He told me the idea. I said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and he said, well, we have a meeting about it on Friday. I said, where? He said, at Universal. I said, on Park Avenue? He said, no, in California. And I said, well, how do you get there? <laughs> and he said, you get on an airplane. And I said, well, who pays for that? I mean, I was making $140 a week. Right. I, I didn't have money to. He said, you, mm. no one knows who you are. Mm. And I was like, huh. Hung up the phone and honestly didn't think about it. I was, I, I went home then. I was living with a woman and, and she said, as people do, so what happened today? And I told her everything but that phone call. And then suddenly remembered the phone call. So, oh, and then I got this stupid phone call. Right. And she said, you have to go. Right. You have to go. And I said, well, how would that work? She said, you buy a plane ticket, you put it on a credit card, and, and then you figure it out later. Yeah. And I said, yeah, but I have to work. And she said, you call in sick. And I said, well, that would be lying. I mean, truly, this is who I was. Yeah. And anyway, she convinced me. I went to Kennedy Airport, and I got on this building with wings. Mm. I had never been on one of those big giant, and I was in the fetal position the entire trip. I couldn't believe this thing was staying in the air. Yeah. Landed at LAX, and I'm a New Yorker, so my... Emma was, I got out of the plane, got out of the airport, went to the curb and went like this, you know, mm-hmm. waving in the hopes that a taxi would pick me up and I'd say, take me to NBC. A taxi did finally pick me up, took me to NBC $56 later because, you oh. know, it's from LAX sure, to, yeah. to Burbank. I had $75 in my pocket, paid the taxi guy, knew I would walk up to NBC and say, hi, my name is Glenn Karen. I have a meeting and he'd say, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. I knew that was, you know, but in fact, I got there and there was a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and there were all these young people, slightly older than me, but nonetheless young. And um, one of them looked at me and said, where do you live? And I said, I live on 22nd Street between 7th and 8th in New York, Chelsea. Mm-hmm. I said, Sid Vicious is my neighbor. He, you know, I mean, I, that's where I lived. And he said, oh, that's too bad. 
He said, because if you lived here in California, we'd send you home and you could write a little story. And if we liked the little story, we'd let you write a script. And, and the meeting was over. It's 45 seconds. Everybody stood up. <laughs> and I said, as I saw everybody rise, I went, you know, if you let me do it, here's what I do. Mind you, this was an idea I didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently I started to talk and I didn't stop for an hour. Hmm. I mean, I think I told them the color of the wallpaper and the different, I mean, I just, and when it was all done, they went, okay, you have a deal. Yeah. Hmm. So I wrote this, I went home, <laughs> I went back to New York, I quit my job, and I wrote this pilot. Um, it was called The God Squad, just to give you some sense. Okay. <laughs> and this was a few years after Warren Beatty's movie, Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. And the premise was that at, you know, eight o'clock on a Tuesday night, three angels would come down from earth every week <laughs> and do a good deed until they racked up enough points to get a permanent place in heaven. Um, apparently, Jimmy Stewart read it. Yeah. And he said, I'll do this because it involved someone of that stature playing God mm -hmm. and only involved one day's work. So once Jimmy Stewart signed on, it was a go. So mm -hmm. they actually made the, they rewrote the pilot, <laughs> made the pilot. Um, but that's how I got into the business. And people had not, and to this day, it's unusual for someone, the first thing to be a pilot that gets made. So suddenly I had an agent, mm -hmm. you know, people come out of the woodwork. And the agent said to me, it was, it was at ICM. And they signed me. And I, all I was interested in was movies. I wanted right. to make movies. And they were like, movies, movies, movies. And they signed me. And they said, okay, let's talk about television. And I yeah. said, I don't even watch television. I don't <laughs> care about television. <laughs> I was such a snob. And they said, go home and watch television. And if you see something you like, call us. Hmm. So I, I went out and bought a little television because I didn't even have one. And started to watch. And this TV show premiered called Taxi. Sure. Um, and I went, oh. Well, this is pretty good. Yeah. I kind of like this. So I called ICM the next day and said, I, I saw a show I liked. It's called Taxi. And they went, stay by your phone. Hmm. And they called back three days later and said, okay, you have a deal to write five episodes of Taxi, uh, but, but you have to move to California. Hmm. So I bought a car and I drove to California and proceeded to, you know, go to Taxi. Now, yeah. to me, Taxi wasn't filmmaking. It was some other thing. It was this, you know, Everybody's on a proscenium stage. Sure, and, it's theatrical, yeah. Yeah, but nonetheless, you know, what a great opportunity. It's so much better than working in a gas station or a movie theater. Um, but apparently, I was the most obnoxious writer in the history. <laughs> um, the episode that I came in and did was the thing called The Great Race. It ended up being the Sweeps Week episode. But I think the process for Glenn and Les Charles, who were actually running the show, right. was so painful because they would say, all right, I think— uh, I think Louis would walk in from over there and he'd go blah, blah, blah. And Alex would come in over here and I'd go, no, 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 no. Alex wouldn't do that. Mm. I was so thoroughly and deeply invested in these characters <laughs> that I was telling the people who created the show <laughs> what they would do. Yeah. And I had no sense that that was not a nice thing to do or, or not a sensible thing to do. And I, would, I did it, I think, with enormous passion, too, which made it even more obnoxious. Right. So I, we got done with the first episode and now I'm waiting to do the other four. And no one has the heart to tell me, you know, <laughs> those aren't happening. No, it, life's too short. <laughs> um, and then, but, you know, so I would call my agent every week. Have you heard from the folks at Taxi? Are they ready for my next one? You go, no, but go do this. Mm -hmm. And the this started to be our television, which was a little closer to filmmaking. Right. And um, the big sort of thing for me was I started to recognize that there were directors in television Right. They weren't as heralded, but they but there were certain directors I thought, I want to work with that person. I want to learn from that person. And the first and probably only person I really identified 
I mean, James Burroughs, I, I identified in comedy and serendipitously did Taxi, but Robert Butler was a guy who sort of was the history of television. I mean, he right. had directed the, the first pilot of Star Trek. He directed the pilot of Batman. He directed Hill Street, the pilot of Hill Street Blues. He ended up directing the pilot of Moonlighting. He, he was somebody I really wanted to learn from. And he was doing a show called Remington Steel. Mm. I had already turned down Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, pretty much everything that was good at MTM. <laughs> and I needed a job. And someone said, what about this new show called Remington Steel? And for me, the great allure, the only reason to even consider doing Remington Steel was this guy, Robert Butler, directed the pilot and was going to hang around. Sure. And I really wanted to learn from him. So I ended up doing eight or 10 episodes of Remington Steel. And then suddenly a pilot I wrote for ABC started to go and I formed a company and did three pilots, the third of which was Moonlighting. And Moonlighting sort of began the, right. you know, right. the big, and it actually got me into the movies, which was really where I wanted to be at that moment. So. I've been using HelloFresh for honestly about a year now uh, before they even signed on to sponsor this podcast. And I have been consistently impressed with the quality of their meals, with the quality of their ingredients, and just with like the way everything comes together. The recipes are easy to follow, and I always end up feeling like some sort of weird genius when I emerge from the kitchen with some wonderful dish or another. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you are looking for an easy way to cook and an easy way to provide uh, healthier meals for your family. HelloFresh is the way to go. Um, they offer a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box, and you can order three, four, or five different meals for two or four people every week. New recipes are created every week, and every recipe is just six steps. You'll be chopping and zesting. You'll be cooking. Uh, most of the recipes take just 30 minutes. Some take less, and they require minimal equipment. Uh, you're going to be constantly experimenting in the kitchen to let fresh, natural ingredients shine, and they offer ever-changing menus, classic ingredients in a new light, and easy-to-follow recipes to help you avoid the food coma and feel good inside and out. It's the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience and not just the plate. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And they employ two full-time regular dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. They deliver the food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free and it's less than $10 per meal. So, listen, if you want to get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code in Interesting 30. Again, that's interesting 30. So you go to HelloFresh.com, you enter the promo code interesting 30, you're going to get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. And I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Knowing how much you love the movies, uh, did, did you get to meet Jimmy Stewart ever? Or, no. Or not? Oh, okay. No. But, was, but was it still sort of a thrill to know that like he was involved? It was, but it was also... I was in my 20s. He was in his 150s. It, you know, it was a very, you know, it wasn't real. Um, can I digress and tell you a yeah, silly please, story? Please. So I'm, I'm doing Moonlighting. Right. And I pick up the phone. Back then we had landlines. And, and landline rings. And I pick up the phone. And the voice on the other phone goes, hello, this is Cary Grant. <laughs> and I said, bullshit. <laughs> and he went on for about three or four minutes attempting to convince me yeah. that he was Cary Grant. And finally, I... More out of exhaustion than anything else, I said, like, okay, well, what can I do for you, Mr. Grant? I mean, I had no context for this call. Mm -hmm. I knew who he was, obviously, but he wasn't someone, in, you know, in my orbit, and he wasn't making movies at that point. Mm -hmm. 
Well, he said, he said, he confessed he was a huge fan of the show and wanted to meet me. And he said, do you ever go to the races? And I'm thinking, stock car races? I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, you know, I'm from, I'm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, he explains to me, he means the races at Del Mar. Sure. So, I, you know, I called my wife and I said, listen, I just got this phone call from Carrie Grant. He wants to take us to the races on Saturday at Del Mar. Oh, she said, of course, you know. So we're all excited. We're going to go to the races with Cary Grant. And on Friday, he died. <laughs> there you go. Six weeks later, my phone rings again. Yeah. I pick it up, and it's a man who I've always worshipped named Stanley Donnan, a fantastic yeah. Oh, yeah, director. Yeah, yeah. And he says, hi, you don't know me, blah, blah, blah. I'm very friendly with Barbara Grant, Carrie's widow. Mm -hmm. She was very much looking forward to meeting you before Carrie passed away, I'd like to arrange a little dinner. Mm. Would that be okay? And I'm thinking, you so don't know me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyone's going to feed me? Sure. I'm there. He says, I want to do it at, there used to be a restaurant up on Sunset called La Dome, very fancy restaurant. Mm. He, says, he said, can we, can we do it at La Dome? Would that be all right? And I said, I'm thinking, I'll do it at McDonald's. I'll go Arby's anywhere. You know, mm. I'm easy. Then he calls me a week later. And he says, I'd like to tell you who's going to be at the dinner and just make sure they're okay with you. I'm thinking, <laughs> this, is, this, this is all backward. Yeah. I'm in on a pass. Mm -hmm. Someone's going to tap me on the shoulder anytime now and go, you can leave now. We're on to you. <laughs> and he's asking my permission to invite these people. He said, uh, it would be myself and Barbara Grant, Billy and Audrey Wilder. I mean. Yeah. And David Beagleman. Okay. And I only knew David Beagleman as that guy who had signed a check for Cliff Robertson and gotten. Uh, so he, he was very concerned that I understand who David Beagleman was and who he was before that happened and what his context was in the motion picture business and all sort of thing. And I must say, I found him to be a fascinating fellow. But to sit and have dinner with Billy Wilder for me was like a religious experience. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, but all of that grew out of this phone call from Cary Grant. Um, so. Enough of that. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, I, I, I do want to talk about Moonlighting because that was, it wasn't the very first TV show that everybody obsessively followed everything that was happening around the show in addition to the show itself. But certainly it felt like it coincided with the rise of a certain kind of show business media that only wanted to talk about like behind the scenes escapades. Like what was that like being involved in this show that became a hit and then became like a, a cultural talking point? I can only tell you my experience. Sure. And my experience was, uh, and I regret this somewhat, I lived to a large degree in denial of all that. Mm -hmm. The work was what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And really what I poured myself into, it wasn't unusual for me to get there at 5.30 in the morning and write what we would shoot at 8 in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the floor constantly. Um, Bruce and I are virtually the same age, come from very similar backgrounds. I think at that moment in his life, I know for me in that moment, neither of us could believe what we were getting away with. Right. And I do think it fell into that box of getting away with. Mm -hmm. um, so all the hubbub wasn't of interest to me because it, it would distract me. Mm. I, and I didn't care. I cared about it only insofar as it really took a toll on Bruce. Bruce was genuinely upset. Bruce, particularly in that moment of his life, was somebody who was filled with... Um, I'm going to mangle this joie de vie. Is that the expression? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he loved to live life. And the idea that people were watching him mm -hmm. and that he might do something that would offend someone or that he'd be judged for, we, he, it was like a, this unexpected consequence of yeah. being so talented. And I actually apologized to him at one point. I said, I'm sorry. I know I had a hand in making you famous. Please forgive me. 
but we were both very young, you know, and, and um, but I wasn't aware in that way. I, I, I mean, one time I went to the supermarket and there was a National Enquirer cover and there was a picture of me. Well, the picture was of Sybil. The big picture was of Sybil and I was like in the corner, you know, in a box, you know, the evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it said she threw some, a briefcase at me or something. Um, and I was like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that. And I remember um, one night on the national news, on the NBC news, there was a, 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 a story about how much the show cost, how much our show and Miami Vice cost. And I thought, is this really what, what we're going to discuss on the national news? Is, right. You know, how much money I'm spending to make an episode of Moonlight? It seems silly to me. Um, but beyond that, I, I really kind of put my head in the sand and I just thought, I want to do this. I want to make movies. I don't care about this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was sort of troubled because back then what they would do is they would place ads in the Hollywood Reporter and the classifieds and would say, you know, $200 for a tip. And they were basically saying to your crew, mm-hmm. pick up the phone and give us some gossip and we'll give you $200. And it was just, I could not imagine that anyone right. who worked with us would do that. But clearly there were some people that were willing to do that. But um, no, I, I, I didn't. I'll tell you, for me, this, the moment where I suddenly went, I guess this is a big deal, mm-hmm. is I had never taken a vacation in my life. And now I'm doing this big television show and I'm, I'm making a little money. And we decided to take a vacation and we flew to Maui. Mm-hmm. And um, got to the hotel, and I went to the gift shop, uh, probably to buy cigarettes or something. And there on the magazine rack was Mad Magazine. Mm. And on the cover of Mad Magazine was Moonlighting. And to me, that was sort of the clarion call, like, oh, well, this is, this is <laughs> I must be doing something of consequence. Yeah. Um, but uh, how's that for a long answer to no, a short question? <laughs> no, the, the, the show sort of famously... Um, was one of the will they, won't they progenitors and has become, I think unfairly has become a cautionary. I agree with you. (laughs) But uh, I want to hear your discussion of that, like the decision finally to get those two characters together and then sort of the fallout that ensued from that. Well, uh, it wasn't a well-planned thing. I mean, the getting them together was, um, but it was simply because I couldn't imagine not getting them together. There was so much heat being generated there. (laughs) It seemed absurd to think, okay, they'll go for another five years and not. Um, but I also, I honestly didn't see the cliff. Mm. I didn't think that would be the end of anything. And I don't think it would have been had a couple of other things not happened. Um, it was sort of a perfect storm. Bruce went on a ski trip, broke his shoulder. Right. So he couldn't work for a bit. Sybil got pregnant with twins. So there was a period she couldn't work for a bit. Mm. And the Writers Guild of America went on strike. And all those things happened in sort of a roiling broil that made it impossible for us to shoot episodes with he and her in the same place at the same time. His healing period Mm -hmm. was different than her pregnancy period. And he had committed to a movie that we had promised him he could go make. This was after the success of Die Hard. So I had to construct stories where they weren't in the same frame. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the Writers Guild came along and made it impossible for us to continue production. So I think a lot of air went out of the balloon. My thought was, when we originally did it, was these two people will make love. Mm-hmm. And then, as sometimes happens in life, they will wake up and go, I have to continue to have a, a relationship of a different kind with this person, and right. it's complicated by this. And I thought, that there's fuel there for three or four years, but we never got to do that. Right. Um, additionally, there was a whole... And then, sort of on top of that, I mean, Sybil, I don't think it's a secret... Sybil was always extraordinarily unhappy. Right. She was not um, 
she was not having a great time. Um, and that all came to a boil at the same time. So sort of a perfect storm, right. if you will. And a- ABC went through a change of management. All of a sudden, Brandon Stoddard was my boss, not um, Lou Ehrlich and Tony Thomopoulos, who were the people who had sort of godfathered the show. So all of that was going on. And Bruce suddenly became this enormous, you know, Die Hard came out. He had made yeah. two movies prior to that that had done, one did okay, and the other one didn't do well at all. And the thought was, he may not actually have a movie career. And then Die Hard came along, and, and he was, and everybody's talked about this, he was like the fifth choice for Die Hard. He was not the guy at the top of the list. And, and I'll go one step further. I famously told him not to do it. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? And he said, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, I'm going to do this. And I said, no, man, it's a Schwarzenegger movie. They're going to laugh you off the screen. And he said, doesn't matter, they're paying me a lot of money. <laughs> and he call, I went off and directed Clean and Sober, and he called me, and he said, Joel Silver screening the movie. Will you go look at it? It hadn't come out yet. And I was like, okay. And I went to the Fox Theater. They have this big, beautiful theater there. Sat down with maybe 20 other people. And they showed Die Hard. I mean, no one had seen it yet. And I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> this is the greatest movie in the history of movies. I mean, it really was, you know. Yeah. And I, I'd never seen um, um, Alan. Um, Alan Rickman? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just the whole movie was like a, you know, and I called him. I remember leaving the theater and calling him going, oh, my God, this is great. And he said, really, you think so? I said, yeah, it's like it's just huge. And he went, well, come on, Glenn, you just made a movie. I said, no, no, no. You made a movie. Yeah. I made like a film. You made a movie. This is a movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, hmm. and and I don't know if people don't remember this either. Literally, when they put it out, they didn't put his face on it, on yeah. the poster, mm-hmm. because... Um, he was thought of as anathema at that point in the movie business. And it took like three, back then you would have a release, a release would sit in the theaters for 12 weeks. You know, so by, by week three, they changed the poster. But um, it was, and it, but that was huge too, because now you had all these people and I, they, were, they were offering me movies to direct, him movies to star in. And you have this television show that you can't seem to make every week. Yeah. You know, there were always problems. Mm-hmm. So all of that. And then at a point I got fired. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, but I always thought, I always thought there was a wonderful and interesting and fascinating show mm. in two people who have all this heat mm-hmm. and chemistry, but clearly can't be together. You know, they're just so different dispositionally. So, but we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, not one person has ever come up to me and said, you know that case? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a case every week and it was actually a very well thought out case. We would take yeah. the case... I used the theory, I, I'd heard, I think it was George S. Kaufman, when he would work for the Marx Brothers, that those were always extraordinary, those movies were extraordinarily well-developed as three acts, you know, classic three acts. And then they would take that structure and just step all over it, you know, yeah. just, 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 you know. And I thought, that's what, and that's what we aspired to on, not, not that we're comparing ourselves to that, but that's what we aspired to on Moonlighting. And I remember seeing Ghostbusters and... Mm-hmm. Same thing, you know, you, you think of it as a romp, and it is a romp, but it's a romp because there's actually beneath it this terrific piece of, of architecture, you know, writing architecture. Yeah, the yeah. world is coming to an end. Mm, yeah. The demons are coming out, and they're going to seize New York, and, you know, and yes, it's horse shit, but it, it, you know, Billy Wilder said to me, he said, well, you know, what makes Some Like It Hot work mm-hmm. is the first two minutes of the movie, they line up 30 people, and they gun them down. Yeah. It's the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He said, that gives you permission to put on a dress to save your life if mm. you have to. And it, 
we would put that kind of thinking into moonlighting. It's also why we only made <laughs> 13 or 14 episodes a year. Cause that, I mean, that was the other thing. I was stupid and, and young and, uh, a big snob, frankly. Mm. So I thought I'm going to shoot these episodes until they're perfect. Yeah. And then I will show them and people will appreciate them. And it won't matter that you have, don't have 22. You can rerun these three times. Yeah. And it worked actually. We would get a 40, 45 share on something we'd shown twice before. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I also thought, oh, I'm, I'm never coming back. I'm going to go make movies. I'm never coming back and doing television. So I can, I can burn the house down. You know, it's okay. Um, the arrogance of youth. Mm. Um, but what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to ask, like, you guys did so many, uh, not experimental, but you kind of broke the, broke the formula on that show a lot of times. You know, you did a, uh, did a musical. You did a black and white episode. You did Shakespeare. Can you still do that on broadcast networks? It feels to me like a lot of shows aren't taking that room to break their formula. Because certainly shows followed in your footsteps like X-Files did, and there were several others that came along. But it feels like there's less of that experimentation now in Broadcast Network. Well, I think a lot of it's been done. Mm-hmm. But sure, I think you can still do it. And I, one of the things I said to Michael when I sat with him is I said, if I'm in your head, mm. if, if you're a fully realized character, I can do anything. I can do a Western. Mm. I said, because we wake up in the morning and, you know, we're in our own little movies. And some, some days it's, it's drama, some days it's comedy, some days it's musical, some days it's melodrama. Um, and uh, listen, I think the season opener this year, Bull, there's a lot of farcical elements in that. You know, about this woman who stabs herself so she can kill her husband. And yeah. I mean, it gets, it gets kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it, nobody's, you know, it's not revolutionary, but it's certainly... Um, not what you expect when you tune in to see procedural on CBS. You know, it's not NCIS Bayonne. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's some other thing. Um, so yeah, I I do think you can do that. It's just, it, and I'm not being self congratulatory here. I'm not meaning to anyway. It's hard. Yeah. Because in order to, you know, sort of get outside the border of what a show is supposed to be, you have to thoroughly understand what's inside the border, and you have to keep challenging yourself and saying, no, that's not good enough. That right. doesn't, I think, see, I think the problem is a lot of television is made by people who are not self-critical enough. Right. When I make television, it's not always true. Sometimes you literally run out of time, but, but I say to my, am I authentically amused by this? Am I authentically interested? Am I, am I authentically intellectually stimulated by this? I, I mean, that's all I have to work with. I can't get in the business of second guessing, mm-hmm. you know, will the network like this? Will the public like this? I, I like to think that if it amuses me, it will amuse someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my criteria. It seems to me like the TV shows you make are often based around, or and, and your film work as well, are often based around like really strongly identified relationships. Obviously Moonlighting, but but Now and Again, I know I'm going to get that title wrong because <laughs> Now and Again had that that sort of fractured marriage at its center, which was fractured in a different way than you'd expect. Uh, and uh, Medium had a marriage at its center. And now you have in, in Bull, you have kind of this playful repartee between him and the character whose name I can't remember. Well, different uh, characters all the time, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like well, the the um, uh, female attorney. Um, right. Diana, maybe? Right. Um, but she was there just for the one episode. Yeah. She's been there before. Yeah. But yeah, she's not a regular is what all I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I hope she comes back. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll tell her you said so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like what, what, do you, what do you think about having a relationship like at the center of one of these stories that's going to keep going and keep going like what does that give you for fuel it's just it's just an area i'm very comfortable in so Mm -hmm. you know um i did this movie it was the first script of vince gilligan's that ever got produced it was a thing called wilder napalm sure Mm -hmm. um you say sure um i've heard of it (laughs) 
played in some of the finer gas stations. <laughs> uh, but 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 I was very proud of it. But I, I did it with uh, Deborah Winger. And yeah. Deborah Winger said to me, she was the first one to say it to me. She said, you do men and women, don't you? Mm. And I said, no, no. I, I thought about that. Well, actually, almost everything I've done has in one way or another sort of pivoted around, you know, one of those relationships. I'm just very comfortable with that. I love... I love that idea, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. And, and the complexity of it and the darkness of it and the lightness of it. And it's just, you know, I'm very comfortable in that zone. So yeah. I, I do tend to drag things over there just because it's, you know, it's yeah. what I know. Yeah. Now, I was, I was a, I'm going to ask you a now and again question sure. because uh, the, the, the people of the internet demand it. <laughs> I really did like that show. And I'm wondering, like, you obviously only got one season for it. It was your, I think it was your first TV show in a while. Like, was, yes. was, was it hard to get back into television uh, after you'd been making movies and after sort of Moonlighting became what it had become? Like, was it hard to get back? And then what were some of the things you'd hoped to do with now and again that you didn't get to because it was cut short? Um, it wasn't hard to get back. Les Moonves actually made it very easy. He came to me. Mm -hmm. I was living in New York and I had just finished, I think, Picture Perfect with Jennifer Aniston. And he said, can I take you out to breakfast? And he took me out to breakfast and he said, you should be doing television. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I shouldn't. I fooled everybody once. I don't think I can fool them a second time. And he said, no, 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 no. Write a pilot. Mm -hmm. Write anything you want. I will make it. And I wrote out of that grew now and again, which was me sort of doing damn Yankees, right. frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> he didn't like it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he hated it. Um, and, uh, you know, and told me so. Les is not a shy fellow. And, um, but Paramount, who made it, who financed it, said to him, have you tested it? And he mm -hmm. said, no, I don't have to test it. I've seen it. I don't, it doesn't work. Mm. They said, you should test it because it tested through the roof. So he put it on television, but he put it on Friday nights at nine o'clock mm -hmm. after Candid Camera. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, as if to say, well, okay, let's see how it works. And, <laughs> and it actually did rather well given the time slot. Um, but, and famously, I was so certain we were coming back. I did the last episode as a cliffhanger, right. which will give you some idea of the independence with which I worked that no one checked in and said, you really shouldn't do a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, um, what had I hoped to do? Well, I know we had a whole answer for that cliffhanger because I talked to Renee Echevarria who uh, worked with me on that show about it. He remembers it. I really, I don't remember the specifics anymore. It's been a long time. Um, but I loved, and I still love, and it's part of what I did on Medium, I love disparate tones and disparate genres bumping up against each other. Now and again was a science fiction romance mm. government paranoid espionage <laughs> it had all this stuff and I, i'll tell you how again how disconnected i am in terms of understanding what it is i'm doing i just sort of do it mm -hmm. um when the show was over i got a call they said you need to come back to los angeles you won a saturn award mm. i said what's a saturn award I didn't know. they said well it's a science fiction award and i said mm -hmm. oh oh there's a mistake uh, I haven't done any science fiction. They said, no, no, now and again, science fiction. I said, no, no, it's not science fiction. It's, and started to give them this, you know, long, yeah. you know. And uh, they said, you, look, you really have to come back and get this award. I said, <laughs> I really am not crazy about the idea of coming back. They said, James Cameron's going to be, they started listing all the people who, who deigned to show up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the inference was, how dare you not? <laughs> um, so I went and, and it was thrilling. We, yeah. you know, we won this award. Our failure won this award. 
Um, but I, I truly was not aware. I didn't think of it as science fiction. I mm-hmm. thought of it as, you know, some other thing, you know. Yeah. And for me, really, the center of it was this guy yearning for his wife, which yeah. admittedly I stole from Damn Yankees. Mm. Um, and it did. It went a year. And I went, hmm, okay. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not built to do television anymore. Mm. Um, but then one thing led to another, and I think I did some pilots, and then the next big thing really was medium. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, we're we're get, we're getting close enough to the end that I, I could ask for stories all day, but uh, I do want to ask you about a very obscure project on your resume, which is you made a, a thing for I think Disney World. Yes, about uh, about the process of conception. It's the closest like thing a- to sex <laughs> that they ever had at. Uh, yeah, it seems like a weird needle to thread. So I, I want to hear that story. Here's a true story. I was doing, people don't know this, but I spent a year and a half of my life preparing to direct Evita with Madonna. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, and uh, we were doing that with Disney and with Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg's Disney. And Michael Ovitz, who was my agent at the time, called me and said, Michael Eisner is going to call you and ask you for a favor and you should do it. Mm. And I said, okay. And uh phone rang and it was Michael Eisner. And he said, um, he said, we're opening a new exhibit at Disney World in three weeks uh, called The Wonders of Life. It's paid for by Metropolitan. It's some big insurance company. Mm-hmm. He said, we've been working on a movie for three years. I've just seen it. It's awful. Mm. And it's about how babies are born. Okay. Um, he said, and I think this is really important because, frankly, a lot of teenagers are giving birth to a lot of babies. And there has to be a way to have this conversation. And I'd love it to be, happen in, at Disney World. He said, could you, could you, you know, think of something? So I literally sat down and sort of dashed off in two days this script, mm-hmm. sent it, which for me was, well, if I'm doing it with Disney, maybe they'll let me do animation. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had like a, a minute and a half animated sequence and big dance numbers and all this stuff. Um, sent them the script and he said, this is fantastic. Can you direct this? And I was getting ready to do another movie I didn't do called uh, Mad Dog and Glory. Okay, yeah. So I wasn't available. Uh, and then the star fell out mm-hmm. of Mad Dog and Glory, so suddenly I was available. So I went and did this 15-minute movie, which is starred Martin Short. Mm-hmm. Martin Short played himself, his grandfather, his father, and his child. Mm-hmm. He played all those people. And it was really about how babies are born. Right. How we meet someone, and we have this moment, and we, you know, it, it was it was a very sort of gentle conversation starter for children and their families. Yeah. And there were protests. I mean, it was just, <laughs> but it was great fun. It was just enormous fun. And I remember, I mean, here's the funny part. You get, I was like halfway through it, and Ovid's called me again. He said, you know, they don't pay you for these things. Mm. And I said, really? <laughs> and he said, no, but you can ask them for a gift, and they'll give you anything. <laughs> and I said, oh, cool. And my family had never been to Disney World. Mm-hmm. So I said, we, we'd like to go to Disney World. Mm-hmm. And they flew us, Jeffrey flew us, he was on the jet with us, flew us from Los Angeles to Florida. And we went to Disney World for like three days. Mm-hmm. I spent, I don't know, four or five hours with Jim Henson. And wow. this was shortly before he passed away. Oh, wow. um, I mean, it was just fantastic. Um, and, and it played like every 15 minutes for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. I think they finally retired it because everybody's hairstyles was starting to look silly. <laughs> and, um, uh, but yeah, I did that. 
It's on, it's on YouTube if people want to watch it. Yeah, like, but I mean, it was yeah. originally oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. super technoscope. Yeah. And you know, I'm not sure YouTube gives you the whole experience. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it probably doesn't. Um, well, we're, I want to ask you this really quickly before we, we get to the very end. And uh, that is, you've worked now in cable and broadcast your last two jobs. What do you think cable can learn from broadcast and vice versa? This is going to sound very brown nosy. That's fine. But I, I think John Landgraf mm-hmm. is just an amazing... I think when they dreamed up the idea of media executive or television executive, John Langreff was the thing they were thinking of. And it's taken us these 50 years to sort of get to that. I mean, he's really one of the the brightest men I've ever had the pleasure of working for. Mm. And when he points you toward what he perceives to be a weakness in what you're doing, it's with so much thought. And at the same time, he postures it in such a way that, listen, this is yours to take or leave. Um, He's just, just a wonderful shepherd. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. broadcast is is a, is a different. It's a completely different business because it's advertiser driven. So mm-hmm. you're there's just a different set of priorities, and you know, there's no arguing with the enormous success that CBS has had and continues to have. Um, the only thing that saddens me is it would be wonderful if the shows they did occupied a space in the zeitgeist relative to their apparent popularity in the population, right. there's, there's a disconnect there that I still can't reconcile. Right. Um, having said that, I, you know, I'm not a voracious uh, consumer of broadcast television myself. So, you know, um, you know, when you do it, you watch more of it. But it, it's, a, it's a weird paradox, right. you know? Um, I'm not sure that answers your question, but um, I feel blessed. I've worked for two of the best in two of the different, I mean, you can't work for anybody better at broadcast than Les Moonves. Yeah. And you, I don't believe you can work for anybody better in cable than John Langreff. Yeah. And he's, yeah. he's quite something too. They're completely different people with completely different skill sets, mm. but they do represent the best at their relative thing, you know? Well, we end the show every week by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those now. The first one is, um, what's like the last movie you've seen, TV show you've watched, book you've read, and, and what did you think of it? Just the last pop culture thing you, you consumed. Wow. I watched Blade Runner 2049. What'd you think? I liked it a great deal. Mm. I want to see it again. Mm. It's a lot to consume. Yeah. I love Ryan Gosling. I'm not sure he was the right guy, to mm. be honest with you. And I love Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. Um it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Deacons deserves an Oscar, you know, and I love that director. But it, I need to see it again. It was oddly, I sort of stood at a distance from it somewhat. And I love the original. You know, I'm like one of those idiots, you know, who like <laughs> just thinks the original is the, you know, uh, the birth of film. But yeah. um, so that's the last thing. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, who's the person, it sounds like you've met a lot of people, so this may be tough to answer, but who's the person that you've learned the most from that you've never met? Oh, what a great question. Um, Learn the most from who I've never met. I'll tell you somebody I idolized who I went out of my way not to meet. Mm. And that was David Lean, Mm. um, who came to this country to prepare his last film, which he didn't finish. They threw a tribute for him at AFI. And someone called me and invited me and said, would you like to go to this tribute? And I said, no. And they said, why why wouldn't you want to go to this? And I said, because I so idolized this man. Right. And I don't want to meet him for fear that he's not all that I think he is. Um, and then unbeknownst to me, and again, this was when Moonlighting was sort of at its height. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a call the next day from the DGA saying he left something here for you. And I said, no, there's a mistake. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. And they said, no, no, he, he brought this. He wanted you to have it. It was a book of set photographs oh, wow. and a letter. He was a huge fan of the show. Mm-hmm. Which so I think there was something classical about the show. Mm-hmm. 
And then I'll change my answer and tell you, the person I learned the most from who I've never met and I always wanted to meet was Frank Capra. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but when I was a teenager, I stumbled on the Capra films and mm-hmm. was like, sort of gobsmacked by them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And Disney, I mean, the usual, I think, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. And finally, uh, this is a new one I'm, I'm going to break out for you, which is, what's the best meal you've ever had? Whether that's like, whether that's the quality of the food or the quality of the company, doesn't matter. What's the best meal you've ever had? Wow. Wow. Or which, which one sticks out in your memory the most, I guess, might be a, a better way to put it. I don't know if it was a meal. I was in New York. I had just come to New York to live in New York, which is very daunting. It certainly was when I went, you know. Um, the city was very intimidating. It was in the middle of that whole crack thing that was going on and all that stuff. And a woman asked me out to dinner and ordered a bottle of wine. I don't think I'd ever had a drink of wine. And I'll always remember that meal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great thank you so much Glenn uh, Bull is on Tuesdays on CBS at I believe 9pm Eastern yes. and uh, thank you for dropping by oh thanks so much for having me congratulations you made it to the closing credits I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. Fox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. Our studio is the Village Workspaces Podcast Studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please leave us a review. I read all of them. I I, I like to see what you have to say, even if it's critical. And uh, it really helps us climb the charts. It really helps us get great guests. And we're, we're getting some great guests, I think agree. You can also email me at Todd at Vox.com. You can email the podcast and everybody who works on it will look at it. And that's I-T-Y-I that's itgee.podcast at Vox.com. You can always tweet me at Tavoti, T-V-O-T-I. We will be back next week with some other guest from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. But until then, can you tell that like a lot of a lot of my love of pointing out like here are the closing credits and and now we're going to do this part of the show like I, that's that's all just like moonlighting. I watched too much of that when I was a child and I apologize for my affection for uh, meta commentary on this podcast. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to curb it. 